Well, greetings from Newport. It is great to be here with you all again. Uh, it's such a joy to have friendship and partnership with this church. Uh, we have benefited, I, my family, our church has benefited greatly from our connections and relationships and ministry from this church. And so it is a joy for me this morning to get to come and be here with you. Um, as we prepare to open God's word, let's go to him in prayer one more time and ask him to open our eyes. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is a light to our path and a lamp for our feet. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would light up the path before us that you mean for us to walk through this world in this life. Lord, open our eyes that we might see and help us to walk by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 14 this morning. And I want us to think together a little bit about the idea of purpose. We all would love to have purpose in life, wouldn't we? Usually the people we admire most are people who have lived their lives on purpose, with every decision being intentional and everything having a reason and a goal being aimed at. And when we think about maybe someone wasting their life, or maybe you can look back on a season in your life and you'd say something like, man, I really wasted those years. We usually mean by that, right, that kind of just living without purpose, nothing being produced, nothing resulting from those years. We often think about purpose in terms of the work that we do, right? So we exert time and effort and thought and energy, and then we receive something in return for our exertion. It may be a paycheck, but a lot of times it's, it's not, right? We get something from our work, and that is another way we think about purpose. I think that's a, that's a good way uh, of thinking about purpose. This is something that I think is ingrained in all of us as human beings. And the reason it is ingrained in human nature is because God Put it there. God put it there. The Bible tells us not only that God created mankind in his own image, the Bible also tells us the purpose for which he created man. So in the, in the chapter before ours, in chapter 1, in verse 27, we see that, that God created man, male and female, in his own image. And then in the very next verse... He tells us why. He gave mankind two tasks, two jobs to fulfill. To be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And to take dominion and subdue the earth. Now this morning we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 4 through 14. And in chapter 2, our attention is, is focused on the creation of mankind as God's image. And the purpose for which God has created us. God has created man in his image for a purpose, which means 
that there is work for us to do that is bigger and beyond our individual nine-to-fives. So as an image-bearer of God, you are meant to share in this purpose that is humanity-wide and history-long. And the purpose of Genesis 2 is to show us our purpose. And the God who gives us our purpose, thankfully, also provides everything we need in order for mankind to fulfill our role as his image in this world. So we're going to take our text in two steps. Verses 4 through 9, man placed in a garden. And verses 10 through 14, the garden's place in the world. So man placed in a garden, the garden's place in a world. So look at me first at verses 4 through 9 where we see man placed in a garden. Verse 4 gives us something like another introduction so that we know that we are again considering the creation of the heavens and the earth. But now we're really looking at this act of creation with a focus on humanity, mankind at at the center of creation. And specifically in view of the purpose for which man was created. Now, I think we're actually meant to see a parallel between the work that God accomplished in creation and the work that man was created to accomplish as God's image. So if you either look back or think back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was described as formless and void, which set the stage for the work that God did during that creation week. He he was going to form what was formless, and he was going to fill what was void. So he formed or ordered creation, right? He separated light from darkness. He separated land from sea, right? And then he filled the creation with every kind of animal and, of course, with people. So God's work of creation is then echoed in the creaturely tasks given to mankind. Man is told to take dominion of the earth. What does that mean? Well, in our passage, what we're going to see is that it involves forming or putting the creation in order. And mankind is tasked with multiplying and filling the earth through procreation. So man's tasks as God's image are themselves creaturely reflections of the work that God himself is doing. In creation, God formed and filled the creation, and now mankind, the image of God, is to image God in our work as we form and fill the earth. Okay. So look at verses 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. These verses are describing a problem that needs to be addressed. And they identify for us the two reasons for the problem. The problem is that the land is, we could say, unfruitful or uncultivated. Plants aren't growing and sprouting. And the first reason given is that it hadn't rained yet. 
So the land isn't getting the water that it needs. We're told that water is springing up from the ground, but so there, there is water, but that water is, is being described here as, as not being adequate to address the issue, obviously, of plants not growing and sprouting. So if water is only coming up from the ground, maybe we'd think, okay, there's, there's water over here in these springs and rivers. The question is, how do we get the water from over there to these dry fields so that plants can grow? And of course, the, the obvious answer in the ancient world was, we need, we need irrigation, right? There isn't rain, so we have to get the water from over here to over here. And this, of course, is the second reason our text mentions for why the ground isn't bearing fruit. Not only is there no rain, but there is no man to work the ground. So, this is the problem our text is going to address. The land is unformed, unfruitful, it's it's wild, it's uncultivated. And the text says what we need is two things. The land needs water, and the land needs a man to work the ground. And so God is going to provide everything that his creation needs. So, first, in verse 7, he creates a man. Now, verse 5 said, there was no man to work the ground. And so God here creates a man. Now, here's a man. And what's his purpose? To work the ground, right? This is the text definition of what it means to take dominion and subdue the earth. Those words might fill us with kind of industrialized fears, but the way the text defines these terms, it's this image of cultivation to make the land fruitful and productive for life. Okay, so if if this is the purpose for which man was created, does God then kick him out into the wilderness and say, start making stuff grow? I mean, that is his job, right? Go work the ground. Subdue and take dominion of the earth. Form it. Cultivate it. Get to work. Christian, it is so important for us to see that from the very beginning and to the very end, God never tasks his people and then tells them, go figure it out on your own. He has never done that. And he never will do that. God has not required anything of you that he has not also told you how to do it and given you everything you need to be able to do it. This is exactly what we see right here. Man is created for the purpose of working the ground, to cultivate and take dominion of the earth. But God does it first. Verse 8, God plants a garden. A place of cultivation, right? And he places man there. Which means, first of all, really simply, God is just providing for all of man's needs, isn't he? Man did not need to scratch out an existence for himself out of the dry dust. No, he has all the food he could need and he lives in a place of pristine beauty. Human life at the first was not solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. God not only provides for all of man's needs by means of the garden, but he is also showing man 
how to fulfill the task that he has given to him. The garden, we could say, is like God's prototype. It's an example of the finished product. The garden shows the man what he is working towards as he goes out and tries to subdue and and take dominion of the earth. He's seen what the end goal is supposed to look like because he lives there in this garden that God had made. He knows exactly what the goal is because God has already done it and given him a model to follow. So God does not just create man, drop him in the wilderness and say, take dominion. What does that mean? How do I take dominion? What what do I actually go out and, and do? God does not merely give a command of what he is to do. He shows him exactly what it's supposed to look like and how to do it. Adam was a gardener, but God was the first gardener. And he has created man in his image and likeness. And what man is to do in the world is to image and imitate what he has already seen God do in the garden. And God still does this for us in his word. God has not just given us commands of how to cultivate your family or how to, or, or, or to build up the church or make disciples of the nations. God doesn't just say, here's what you're supposed to do. Now you go figure out how to do it. God always tells us how. We aren't supposed to figure it out. Chart our own course. Come up with what makes sense to us. He tells us what we must do, and he shows us how we must do it. You were created in the image of God in order to image him, to to learn his ways, to see what, what, what does he do and how does he do it, and then to imitate and follow him, not just towards the goal that he has set, but on the path that he has laid. We can point to another example of this right here in chapter 2. So in our passage, we're focused on the command from chapter 1, verse 28, to subdue and take dominion of the earth. But in the rest of chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, that's going to address the command to be fruitful and multiply. And, And both our passage and that passage follow the same structure. They both begin with a problem. Either the land's not really producing as it should, or... Man's alone. And God, in both cases, remedies the problem by creating man in the first case and by creating woman in the second. And then he gives mankind a pattern to follow. He shows them how to fulfill their God-given tasks as his image bearers. So in our passage, he plants a garden as a pattern for how to take dominion of the earth. And in 18 through 25... God institutes marriage as the pattern for how mankind is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we even see explicit pattern language in verse 24. After describing the marriage of Adam and Eve, Moses, writing this, tells us in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a pattern to be followed. 
So God has not kicked humanity out into the wilderness of ignorance and self-determination and told us to, to figure out our sexuality and procreation and child-rearing. He's commanded us to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Not just in any old way we come up with. No, he's specifically told us how. He's given us a pattern to follow. We could go to the New Testament. Ephesians 4, God tells us to build up the church and that as Christians, we are responsible to help one another grow to be like Christ. Do you know how to get someone else to grow to be like Christ? If you're a Christian, then that's actually a command that Jesus gives to you, a task that Jesus holds you responsible for. Do you know how to do that? Well, good news. We're not supposed to try and figure it out. God tells us how to do what we are to do. And Ephesians 4 says, we do this by speaking the truth in love to one another. That's the pattern we follow. We see this in the Great Commission. Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, tells his disciples, his followers, to to make disciples of all nations. What if that was all he said? Make disciples of all nations and then ascends to heaven. Aren't you glad he said more than that? What is the more that he said? The more that he said is, is how to do it. By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. That is how you do it. So this is always the case. God has not only given us the, the purpose to pursue... He has also given us a specific pattern to follow. Something else we need to notice here in verse 8. This garden that God planted is actually distinct from the place called Eden. You see that? Eden is a place where God plants this garden. So Eden is not technically the name of the garden. Eden is a place that now has a garden. So then what is Eden? Eden is understood in later scripture as a reference to to God's own dwelling place. So in Ezekiel, Eden is referred to as the mountain of God. Where did kings in the ancient world plant gardens? Right outside their palaces, right? In Genesis 3, we're we're told that, that God would walk in this garden in the cool of the evening. So God, as the king, rules over the earth. But this garden was a special place that he had made. He had made it for man to provide food and enjoyment. He would also created it for man as, as, as a model of cultivation, for man to follow as he fulfills his task of cultivating and subduing the earth. But also, the garden was meant to be a place where man might meet with and commune with God. If that is the purpose of the garden, then that shapes our understanding of mankind's purpose of taking dominion. So from Genesis 2, man was created with a purpose to fulfill, and God has given him a blueprint to follow by planting a garden. So at the beginning of history, we could say the 
The world is wild and uncultivated. There's only this, this one place, this one garden that God has planted. And man's purpose is to go out into all of the world and subdue it. And he's been shown how. He's to bring the, the cultivation of God's garden into the rest of the world. To cultivate the earth so that the whole world then comes to reflect this garden that God has planted. So then at the end of history, we could imagine this, right? Man's task is completed. What does the world look like? What we should expect is that the whole earth, even the, even the deserts and waste places, will be made like the Garden of Eden. This is the exact imagery, actually, that the prophets, like Isaiah, used to describe the good end that all of history is moving towards. This is the goal of creation. God's desire is not just to have one set-apart place where God and man commune. God's intention is for the entire earth to be made like this garden. The earth is to be filled. With the glory of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea. This is the purpose for which man was created. And this is a task that he has given to man. Look with me next at verses 10 through 14, where we see the garden's place in the world. Now in verses 10 through 14, we read about four rivers. Two of these rivers are known to us, the Tigris and the Euphrates. But the other two are unknown, the Pishon and the Gihon. And it actually seems like these rivers were unknown even in Moses' day when he's writing this because he gives a lot more description about those two rivers, about where they were located, as though his original hearers would benefit from more kind of geographical, contextual information about where those two rivers had been. But what is the point of talking about these four rivers Many have taken these verses to be like clues that could help enable us to figure out geographically where the garden was. It was probably somewhere in modern day Iraq. I think this would actually be a really amazing premise for another Indiana Jones movie. You know, someone figures out where these two unknown rivers really were. And it turns out that the Nazis were digging in the wrong place. And so Indiana grabs his hat and goes out to look for the lost garden of God. Now, let's be clear about two things. Number one, I would definitely watch that movie because it sounds amazing. But number two, I don't think that has anything to do with what these verses are actually talking about. The point of these verses, I think, is to show us the garden's place in the world, but not in terms of latitude and longitude. Rather, in terms of the garden's intermediary place between God's presence in Eden and the ends of the earth. Now let's remember, what was the problem being addressed in our passage? The plants in these dusty fields just aren't growing and sprouting and producing. And the text told us, well, there's, there's two reasons why that's not happening. There's no rain to water the ground. And there's no man to work the ground. God has created man. 
commanded him to subdue and take dominion of the earth. He's shown him exactly how to do it by first planting a garden himself for man to dwell in, to learn from, and to imitate as he then goes out into the world to image his creator by cultivating the earth. But honestly, what is Adam going to do if he walks out into a dry field, try to make stuff grow? Does man have within himself the, the power and the capacity to make life just spring up from the dry ground? If man is going to cultivate the earth, if he's going to make life spring up from the ground, if he is going to make the wilderness like the Garden of Eden, he's going to need some water. So here in verses 10 through 14, we see that God himself, who provides everything we need, here provides the life-giving water that is needed to form and cultivate the earth. Now, we already said the text made a distinction between Eden itself and the garden. Here's why that matters. What is the source of this river of life? Where does this water come from? says it flows out of Eden. It flows out of God's own presence. And where does it flow to? It flows out of Eden into the garden. So again, we see these two are being distinguished. Eden is the source of the river. The garden is the first destination. The river waters the garden. So everything growing in God's garden is sustained by and given life from this river. But then what happens to this river that flows from Eden into the garden? What happens? From the garden, that one river divides into four. And I think we're supposed to hear this and think in terms of four rivers flowing to the four corners of the earth. The river of life that streams from God's presence flows first into the garden and then from the garden out to the ends of the earth. So the question, where is the garden of Eden, is exactly the right question that we should ask. And the text answers that question by telling us that the garden is the point of contact between the the life-giving power of God's presence in Eden and the ends of the earth. The garden is the the distribution hub from which life and blessing flows from God the creator to fill the whole earth. God has tasked man with taking dominion of the whole earth and, and making it like the garden. If man's going to do that job, he's going to need water. And so God provides a river of life from his own presence. That same water that brings life to the garden will also bring life to the whole world. So Adam is not only given a pattern to follow in the garden. God also provides the life-giving power that flows from God's own presence that is needed to transform the world. Now, am I reading too much into this? Am I spiritualizing geographical, topographical information for the sake of a good sermon 
in a way that's unwarranted. Well, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. I want us to see, how does the Bible read the Bible? So flip with me to Ezekiel 47. If you're using the Pew Bible, I believe it's on page 779. Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel's day, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. But Ezekiel's given this vision of a new temple that's going to be restored in the last day. And this new temple is unrealistically gargantuan. We might even say that it's cosmic in scope. I want us to see what is coming out of the temple in Ezekiel 47 verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced the east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Water is flowing out of God's presence in this cosmic end times temple. And verse 5, look at verse 5, says this water becomes a river. And then where does this river go and what does it do? Look at verses 8 and 9. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Look at verse 12. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And we read from Revelation 22 earlier. Revelation 22 is the fulfillment of this vision in Ezekiel. So flip, flip to there again. Uh, Revelation chapter 22. This is the last chapter of the whole Bible. Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, when we read Genesis 2, in light of the rest of scripture, we see that these rivers are not about Indiana Jones. They are about what God is going to do for his creation across the span of all of history. God is going to bring life and blessing and fruitfulness and healing to the nations. Now, if the river flowing out of God's presence at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2 is fulfilled in the river flowing out of God's presence at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, that not only helps us see the, the unity of the whole Bible from beginning to end, but it also helps us more specifically identify what is this purpose for which God has created us 
I hope you've suspected that, it, that it's more than just helping plants grow. It has always been God's purpose to bring his blessing to the ends of the earth by means of a man and the river of life that flows from his own presence. Now, of course, we know how the story goes. Genesis 3 stuff gets twisted, doesn't it? Sin enters and messes things up. But let's be really clear what gets messed up. Sin has not canceled God's plan as though God's purposes could ever fail. Adam failed, didn't he? Adam did not make the rest of the world look like the Garden of Eden, did he? Adam's sin got him barred from even entering the garden ever again. This is why God sent his eternal son to become a man. The New Testament says to become the second Adam, another Adam. The New Testament places them in comparison to make the point that the second Adam, Jesus, succeeded where the first Adam failed. And when we say that Jesus as the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed, we don't just mean that he didn't sin. Adam's sin disqualified him from completing his God-given task. Jesus' sinlessness, therefore, qualifies him to complete the task that Adam left unfinished. So when we say that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed, we don't just mean that Jesus wasn't disqualified by sin. He certainly wasn't. But we mean that as truly a man, he accomplishes the God-given task given to man. This is what the, the prophets are talking about when Isaiah says, he will make her wilderness like Eden, her deserts like the garden of the Lord. This is the picture of hope being held out. And it is through Jesus as the second Adam, who 1 Corinthians tells us didn't just become a living being like we see in our passage in verse 7, but that he became a life-giving spirit. Such that now the blessing of God that flows out to the world and brings life is the good news of the gospel. And all who drink this living water that Jesus alone gives, their sins are forgiven because Christ's death has paid for them. And they are restored to God's presence that sin had banished us from. And we receive the promise of new spiritual life now and new resurrection life on the last day because Jesus has already risen from the dead as the down payment. The Bible says if we're in Christ, that means everything that Christ has accomplished, everything Christ has earned, everything Christ has, he gives to you. If you are his, then all that is his becomes yours. Jesus has now tasked his church with bearing witness to all that he has accomplished. And to bear witness to the ends of the earth. 
So just as this river of life flows out of God's presence first into the garden and from there to give life to the world, so God has poured out his life-giving spirit upon the church for the purpose of empowering us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So then what does it mean for the church to take dominion and subdue the earth? Sometimes we're tempted to hear those words and think in militaristic terms, right? We think of an army subduing its enemies. But right here in Genesis, we're told this is, this is gardening language. That's what a farmer does with his fields. It's described as bringing life and fruitfulness into an empty wilderness where nothing good was being produced. How often does the New Testament speak about the task of the church in these terms, right? Planting, watering, bearing fruit, reaping a harvest. Just as the garden was to be this special place that first receives from God and then mediates that life-giving blessing of God to the world, so also God has poured out his spirit upon his people, the church, in order that the church might be the means of God's blessing of new life through the proclamation of the gospel going to the very ends of the earth. This, then, is how we're supposed to understand our task as a church of evangelism and discipleship. If you're a Christian, then like Adam being placed in the garden that that God planted, so God has placed you in a church where, where first of all, you just get to receive. We just get to enjoy the life-giving blessings that that we didn't work for. We didn't plant this garden. God planted it. And, And God has done this so that we might have a place where we can be and just receive life and blessing because God loves us. He's done that for us. But everything that God has done from creating you to redeeming you has also always been for a purpose. We have been tasked with bringing this living water of God that that we ourselves have received out into the dusty deserts of this world. So that as people drink from the river of life, God might bring them new spiritual life. That dead hearts might come alive through faith in Jesus. This is God's purpose. And we see it from the very beginning. And thankfully from Revelation, we see that God's purposes will not fail. They will not fail. Church, we've been given a purpose to fulfill. We've been given the pattern to follow. And we have been given the power to complete it. And so, we must work to bring this life and blessing of God in the gospel to all peoples until that day when the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have made us in your image and tasked us to imitate you in the world. Lord, we pray that you would help us 
to set about the work that you have given of proclaiming the gospel, that we might take dominion by making disciples. Lord, would you be pleased to cause many in our community to drink from this river of life? Lord, we long for and look for the day when all of your purposes for all of creation will be fulfilled. And when Ezekiel's vision finally comes to pass and we are brought into your presence to dwell with you forever. Lord, we ask that it may be soon. In Jesus' name, amen.